0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Senate followed the House in passing the debt ceiling deal negotiated by President Biden and Speaker McCarthy, and although government spending will be cut, lawmakers may have found a way to increase the Pentagon budget, although some, including on our panel, maintain that that is not likely. Russia continues to pound Kiev, but Ukraine managed to strike Moscow. Uh, apartment buildings sparking panic in the Russian capital. Washington suspended its participation in the New START Treaty to protest Russian violations of the nuclear pact. After Beijing rejected a proposed meeting of U.S. and Chinese defense secretaries in Singapore, a Chinese jet cut off a U.S. RC-135 reconnaissance plane, making clear China isn't interested in the rapprochement that the White House so desperately seeks growing chaos in the Balkans as Recep Tayyip Erdogan is re-elected and continues to block Sweden's NATO membership. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a new American security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship. And everybody should be tuning in next week for their week-long extravaganza uh, with such uh, notables as NATO Secretary General uh, Jens uh, Stoltenberg, as well as the U.S. uh, ambassador uh, to the alliance, Julie Smith and former Pentagon Comptroller, Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, among his many affiliations. Everybody welcome to the program. Um, Michael, uh, you called it last week uh, that both sides would agree to a deal uh, over the weekend and would pass uh, the House and Senate this week. So I'm gonna give you a moment to bask in the glow and, and to gloat a little bit and then answer uh, and then get, get to <laughs> your t- telling us what it all means, uh, right? Uh, we were very closely, uh, a very close uh, Senate, uh, a very, very close house. It's going to be four seats now that a Utah member is resigning uh, to take care of his wife. A uh, very understandable reason for doing it. But again, it complicates the math uh, problem for uh, the speaker, given the vacate rule. Some lawmakers are saying that they found an out, which is uh, the Ukraine supplemental. And to put more money into that, uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee chairman, Jack Reed, uh, as well as his uh, ranking member. Have made that suggestion and 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 we've heard that also from house leaders as being sort of a backdoor way, as we did during the Budget Control Act to increase spending. W- what's the dynamic? Is this a win for the president and for McCarthy? And is the supplemental a way to increase uh Pentagon spending or or not? And I want to get your uh, sense on this because both of you have kind of strong views on it. Take it away.
1: Well, let's back up and talk about you know how the deal and when what's in it too. I mean, look, I think. Yeah, it is a win for McCarthy, clearly. And I think Biden is spinning it as a win. But we'll talk about how both sides had to sell it to their conferences to get this passed. So you know, as mentioned, a deal came together uh, right after our show on, on, Saturday, on Saturday night um, to raise the debt ceiling as we expected to for two years to the end of, of 2024. Now, the legislation is 99 pages long. So but I just want to point out some of the highlights because it, it does uh, cap spending levels at just below uh, FY23 levels and limits the increase of annual growth by 1% per year for the next two years by statute and then aspirationally over the next six years. Uh, It does include uh, stricter work requirements for some uh, uh, poverty programs. It does claw back some of the COVID funds. It does have some of the permitting uh, reforms um, that Joe Manchin had wanted and Republicans wanted. Uh, It does cut funding for uh, new IRS agents for FY23. All that money is taken out. Um, it does uh, uh, restart student loan payments. And uh, for any CR that passes, it is funded at 99% uh, until all appropriations bills are passed. And that's something I want to get back to in a minute when we talk about uh, the implications for defense. So it's interesting to see how both sides sold this. So McCarthy obviously sold this as a huge win uh, to his conference, saying the Democrats got nothing uh, in this bill and, and even boasted about the work requirements. Uh, for these uh, poverty programs, saying that the Democrats had said it was a red line, but yet got them to cave. Uh, at the same time, the Democrats which, are selling it- in, Which is not right. sitting well with the president's base, right? Exactly. Oh, exactly. There's a lot of things in this deal that are not sitting well with the president's base, including the permitting reform uh, for the pipelines. Uh, but, you know, the Democrats told it to their folks saying, hey, look, the Republicans were trying to roll back all of our accomplishments for the last two years, so we stopped it, right? So we, we prevented changes to, to Medicaid, uh, we prevented changes to temporary assistance for needy families. Uh, you know, we stopped any changes to the Inflation Reduction Act on, on climate energy provisions. Uh, we kept the president's plan in place for student loan relief. Uh, so that's the way they sold to their folks. And I think despite the fact that McCarthy had a huge win here and he got a lot of big concessions, the folks on the far right uh, in his Congress were very unhappy. And we've talked a lot about Congressman Chip Roy from Texas who was key in the initial legislation, called this a deal a turd sandwich. Uh, Congressman Ralph Norman from South Carolina said the deal was insanity. Uh, Congressman Dan Bishop from North Carolina uh, said these rhinos are congratulating McCarthy for getting absolutely a Zippo. Uh, And the list goes on. And also remember we talked for a while uh, previous months about Russ Vaught, who was the former OMB director under Trump, who was working with the Republicans on very serious draconian cuts, he was trying uh, to stop the bill in the rules committee and that effort failed. But what was key here was Jim Jordan's support for this legislation. Jim Jordan was the founder of the Freedom Caucus, and he came out saying he felt this was a really good deal. And that gave cover for a lot of mainstream uh, conservatives to support this deal because they never expected the hard right uh, to support a compromise uh, anyway. So, as you mentioned, the bill passed overwhelmingly, I mean, 314 to 117. 149 Republicans voted for the bill, which was a clear majority of the majority, uh, and 165 Democrats. So even more Democrats than Republicans voted for the bill. And that's causing McCarthy headache because Andy Biggs, who was a previous chairman of the Freedom Caucus, came out swinging, saying that we were told we would never put a bill on the floor that would take more Democrats than Republicans to pass. It's an absurd, absurd statement because how can the Republicans control how many Democrats vote for or against the bill? But- ominously, uh, Congressman Ken Buck from Colorado uh, came out the other day saying that McCarthy should be concerned about a motion to remove him mm-hmm. after this debt ceiling deal, All right? So now, as you mentioned, we went on to the Senate last night. The Senate passed this bill, a little tighter margin, 63 to 36. And notably, uh, 36 senators voted against it. 31 of those were Republicans. And many of them are you know, defense uh, hawks, like you know, Senator Cotton, Senator Dane, Senator Fisher, Senator Graham. Uh, senator Schmidt, Senator Sullivan, and most notably, Senator Wicker, who's the ranking uh, senator on the Armed Services Committee. But look, Schumer and McConnell recognized the gravity of the situation. They came together very quickly to move this bill very quickly. And they got the senators who were opposed to it to agree not to drag out the debate on this as long as the amendments got considered. So there were 11 amendments considered yesterday. Uh, Schumer and um, McConnell were closely to make sure that all of them failed, which they did. <coughs> so um but this deal has significant implications for defense. Number one, uh, it freezes, it puts defense for FY24 at the Biden budget request level, which is about 3.2% growth at $886 billion. And we've talked previously, we all expected a, a, an increase of 10 to 15 billion. That has evaporated. And under this deal, that 1% growth does apply to defense. So the defense budget would only go up by $9 billion next year. On top of that, This provision on 99% funding for CRs, uh, what a lot of people haven't realized in this is that even if the defense appropriations bill passes and is signed into law, if any of the appropriations bills have not passed, all discretionary spending gets a 1% across the board cut, including defense, until all these uh, bills are passed. So prior to the passage uh, last night, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham came out blasting uh, this deal, calling it sequestration 2.0. And I think, to some degree, you know he is correct. Uh, he says you're not f- fully funding defense if you're spending below inflation. Uh, and he k- went out and addressed his House colleagues, saying, "I can't believe you did this." And he addressed McCarthy, saying, "I know you got a tough job, but the party of Reagan is dying." Um, Senator Cotton said, "This is a mortal risk to our national security." Um, and Wicker uh, who also voted no you know, said this is a disaster for our defense, but he said he's going to work closely with Chairman Reed, uh, who chairs the Armed Services Committee, about what you mentioned earlier about trying to get supplemental funding. Uh, and I think that's key. So the, the, the Senate leaders had to agree to two uh, concessions in order to get this bill to pass. One was Schumer committed that he would take up all 12 appropriations bills before the end of the year to try to avoid this 1% cut. But two, most importantly, as you mentioned, was an agreement on supplemental spending. But the supplemental spending language, it was a joint statement that the two of them put out, which is very rare. And Kristen Cinema helped negotiate this statement. Schumer McConnell said that the debt limit bill does nothing to limit the Senate's ability to appropriate emergency supplemental funds to ensure our military capabilities are sufficient to deter China, Russia, and other adversaries. But the statement also goes further to mention stateside crises like disaster relief, fentanyl, and other things like that. So... This is something that the, I think the Senate sees as trying to get around, not just the spending caps on defense, but the domestic discretionary uh, spending caps as well. And I think it'll face some challenges in the Senate because Senate Durbin's also already come out uh, against this. Um, but even if we were to get through the Senate, I think the House is a gargantuan lift. Uh, you know, McCarthy's speakership is, you know, one member can vote to, uh, uh, to vote to vacate the chair. Uh, if his hard conservatives see that they're trying to get around this deal, right. I think that they would try and oust him speaker. And this also, if they link this to Ukraine, I think puts Ukraine aid in jeopardy also later this year. Um, I, I want to go to uh, Dove uh, in a
0: moment to uh, get uh, get his take on it. But earlier this week, we had um, the uh, former Defense Secretary Esper and former Air Force Secretary uh, uh, Debbie Lee James uh, on, uh, and they both sort of decried the cuts. Although Secretary James pointed out, you know, it could have been a lot worse than we where we ended up. Even though where we ended up was was not necessarily good and she's speaking from the standpoint who had the budget control act visited on them jim i i know that you still bear scars from uh from from uh that uh as 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 well uh dove uh really uh quickly kind of give us your your sense on this and the implications and and what are going through um you know mike mccord's mind right breathing a sigh of relief that the uncertainty that would have gone with the debt default is not there, but on the other hand, you know, when he we spoke to him, he noted uh, the whole series of other uncertainties uh, that come from an inability to be able to get a plus up and to move money and the constraints that go with with any debt deal. As somebody who suffered all eight years, you know, as 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 uh, either uh, Bob Hales deputy or as comptroller in the in the Obama administration.
2: Well, first of all, I want to clarify something. Everybody's talking about three point three percent growth in defense. That is in the, what's called Defense Function 050. It's an OMB term. And it includes the Department of Energy, uh, NNSA, which deals with weapon, nuclear weapon systems. It's got labor in it. It's got State Department elements in it. It's got intelligence elements in it, anything that has to do with national security. If you actually look at the real function of the Department of Defense, which is called 051, it's less than 3.2%. And when you're talking big numbers, a percent and a half makes a difference. So that's number one. I totally agree with Michael. Look, when we had things like the uh, Overseas Contingency Operations Account, OCO, you could get around that because it didn't count against the deficit, but it always counted against the debt. Here, any supplemental, will count against the debt. So essentially, as Michael sort of said, you're reopening the whole debt question. Now, if you're Speaker McCarthy, and you already had 79 people who voted against the deal you made, and you've got the sword of Damocles hanging over your head because you could get thrown out by your own caucus, are you really going to go and try to reopen this deal not to mention the fact that a lot of those 46 Democrats who voted against the deal are anti-defense themselves. So I don't think McCarthy's going to risk it. And if McCarthy doesn't risk it, I don't even think he'll go to the, the, to the House Rules Committee how close that vote was, two votes. I don't know that he can try to do this again and risk having been defeated in the rules committee, which could open the door for him getting thrown out. So while well, I totally sympathize with with Senator uh, Reed, uh, with Senator Wicker, with Graham, and with all the people who realize that this budget as it now stands is a, because of inflation. And oh, by the way, inflation here than the consumer price index always has been. It's a serious cut. We've got a problem is because Ukraine is tied to that. On October 1, the Ukraine may not get any more money because it's tied to this plan to have a supplemental. And if that's the case, the only person who's going to be happy about it is Vladimir Putin.
0: Um, uh, Michael, what what happens after October 1, right? I mean, you you said that Schumer is now required to do all the appropriations bills uh, by the end of the year. What happens on October 1?
1: That's a really good question, and I'm not sure, because, you know, the, like I said, the legislation is 99 pages long, so I haven't read it. But my understanding is that uh, it, it is January 1 is the line in the sand, that they know that they can't get all the appropriations bills passing conference by the end of the fiscal year so that this uh, cut across the board would take effect on January 1 uh, and not um, October
2: 1. That that is absolutely true. But nevertheless, the new fiscal year starts on October 1. The question then becomes, can you get more money? And even if the appropriations bills do pass, it still begs the question of the supplemental. And so the way I see it, it doesn't look good no matter what day you start, uh, you you finish up with your appropriations. Unless Michael corrects me, I, I just think it's a problem. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I agree with Dove. And, and look, I mean, we're running out of time now. I mean, we're going to be racing to try and get these bills marked up uh, and off the floor in either chamber by the end of the July, um, July work period because they're gone the whole month of August. And the House is not only gone the whole month of August, they're also gone the first two weeks of September. So there's very little time. Uh, to get a supplemental done for Ukraine or anything else uh, by the end of the fiscal year. And I just want to take a quick moment to uh, give a shout
0: out to our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII, sponsor our Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, sponsors our Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications, sponsors our Command and Control Coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our Air and Naval Warfare uh, Coverage. Uh, just really quickly, uh, Michael, because we have so much more uh, that we need to discuss, and I've got to get to Patrick and, and uh, to Jim really uh, quick. Uh, Tommy uh, Tuberville has been uh, obviously uh, blocking the promotion of a lot of military leaders. We now have uh, the, the uh, Assistant Commandant of the United States Marine Corps, General Eric Smith, has been named to succeed uh, General uh, David Berger uh, as uh, the Commandant, uh, the King of the Marines, uh, and, and that's on, on hold, and uh National Security Advisor, Morgan Murphy, um, a, a Navy public affairs officer, uh, Reservist uh, resigned uh, after he told uh, the Washington Post that he was the architect uh, of the maneuver. Does, does this change the dynamic uh, at all uh, in, in terms of Tuberville and his hold because he is getting increasing pressure, including from some of his family members on this?
1: Uh, no, I, I don't think it changes the dynamic at all. Uh, but like I've said previously, hopefully now that uh, the debt ceiling deal has passed, t- attention can be turned to this and accommodation can be reached. But I don't think the staff changes
0: really matter on this. We hope this gets resolved as quickly as possible because these jobs have to get filled. Uh, and it's not fair to these leaders and the entire pipeline. Uh, and voting on them individually is is kind of a non, non-starter. So from your mouth to God's ears, as they would say, uh, uh, Michael. Uh, well, well,
2: there's something more, even more than the leaders. They're families. They don't know when they will have permanent change of station. They don't know where their kids will go to school. They don't know where the spouses will work. I mean, it's not just the, the military themselves, it's their families and it's disgusting.
0: Uh, I, I, in, indeed, thanks for uh, bringing that in, uh, Dove uh, Patrick, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us uh, from Seoul. Uh, whereas in, whereas the, it's the middle of the night and uh, we're very happy that you made it to the hotel in time to be able to join us. Um, tensions between America and China are going to be on full display at the Shangri-La Dialogue. Uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, had proposed uh, that Secretary Austin meet uh, with his Chinese counterpart, Li Shangfu, uh, And Washington has been really pushing very hard to try to have a rapprochement with Beijing one that Beijing is completely uninterested in. Uh, as, as we saw a, a Chinese fighter recklessly intercepted an American reconnaissance plane, an RC-135 rivet joint that the Chinese take an enormous interest in uh, wherever they're operating. Uh, you know, Once upon a time, it was told the Chinese are more interested in where the rivet joints and the stealth aircraft are than even where the carriers uh, are uh, at the end of the day. What are we gonna see uh, in Singapore this weekend?
3: Well, you're right, Vago. The uh, prelude overshadows the, the dialogue already with the J-16 incident over the South China Sea. Before that as well, uh, Xi Jinping in Beijing, uh, speaking to the National Security Commission, uh, talked about dangerous storms ahead. Uh, and he may have been hinting at um, the fact that not only did they rebuff uh, Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin, to have a meeting with his Chinese counterpart, um, you know, Li Xiangfu's meeting with uh, minister hamada of japan instead to kind of stick the knife in here on the united states that uh we're going to we'd rather meet with the japanese than talk to the americans face to face well you've got sanctions on our our minister of defense um the la dialogue opened uh here on friday uh john chipman this is his last sld as the head of IISS. they've uh, selected um uh, a great uh, uh fellow to replace him and he'll come in Um, next year. But uh, Prime Minister Lee also tested with COVID is missing in action. Um, And Prime Minister Albanese of Australia gave the keynote address. And it was a good keynote address. uh, Online can be seen by all now. Um, And it talked about the need for open channels of communication, (laughs) Um, talking very much uh, messaging the Chinese. And I think this is going to be the first of many lectures that will be administered to the Chinese for not meeting with the Americans. The region does not like that. They want the Chinese to be talking to the Americans, especially when the Americans are actually willing to talk. Um, but uh, the Chinese don't really care about that reputational hit. Uh, they're going to uh, pull no punches. We're going to hear from Li Fu on Sunday. We'll hear from Secretary Austin on Saturday. Um, and the Defense Department's already given a pre- sort of a, a prelude to what will be said, and it's going to focus on an impressive record of building up many lateral, uh, cooperation exercises, uh, working with allies and partners throughout the region, and stress this both positive agenda, but also this uh, very strong network of strengthening deterrence. Uh, Financial Times kind of doing a preview of the Austin speech said, uh, here's America building up uh, defenses in China's backyard. I tweeted out, we actually were building uh, allied capability and deterrence in their front yard. Um, There there are a lot of countries there, um, and they deserve to have defense as well. So we're going to hear a lot of back and forth, including uh, focused on Southeast Asia and the South China Sea.
0: Let me uh, turn uh, to that. Secretary Austin stopped in Tokyo on his way to Singapore, uh, where he met with Prime Minister Kishida as well as Defense Minister Hamada. Um, what, what, did, what was the focus of, of those discussions, as best you can uh, tell? Because all of the alliances and partnerships in the region are rapidly coalescing. You're in a country that historically has had a thrust and parry relationship with uh, Japan, and oftentimes seeing something negative in a Japanese proposal where nothing negative really exists in part because of historical reasons. I'm not dismissing those historical reasons, but oftentimes for historical reasons as opposed to current necessity. And it looks like the partnership between Seoul and Tokyo is moving together at a a pace that would very much satisfy Kurt Campbell, somebody who has been pushing for this for decades uh, throughout his career. Um, You know, what 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 were the takeaways from uh, the Tokyo meeting, meetings?
3: Well, indeed, uh, with, uh, with Minister Hamada and Secretary Austin, uh, the trilateral cooperation with Korea, Japan, United States was emphasized and emphatically reinforced. It's setting up what will be a, a leaders summit here shortly among uh, the three countries. Um, this relationship is growing and the Americans are partly responsible for uh, nudging both of them forward. But I think, as I've said before, um, President Yoon of South Korea really has uh, had a lot of courage uh, against popular will in Korea to uh, ensure that this relationship moves forward on cooperation. You know, with the failed missile or uh, launch, uh, it was an ICBM launch, but it was a satellite launch that failed here by North Korea this week. Um, that was uh, it, it triggered alerts in both Japan and Korea that within um right. Turned off, And that kind of early warning data not only needs to be shared more closely through Indopaycom, even uh, through Strategic comp- Command, um, but that's uh, that's a work in progress. And I think they're talking about literally how they build that infrastructure and make it work in terms of their intelligence, in terms of the communications. Um, you do have a lot of support there, though, from Prime Minister Kishida now on working trilaterally. He's willing to He's willing to do more than I think many suspected in terms of the cooperation, especially trilaterally. The bilateral relationship continues to have its issues, um, but trilaterally, uh, both Korea and Japan are, are moving forward. And I think that was the hallmark of this visit. I'm sure they also discussed, although uh, they didn't talk about it publicly, uh, the fact that Japan is beefing up the uh, Southwest Island chain. Uh, including with their missiles and in uh, defenses. Um, and those are going to be critical. A part of a military network should China ever take aggressive action against Taiwan. So very important military maneuvers are going on sort of behind the scenes, less talked about.
0: Do you uh, think that the North Korean openness about the failure signals, uh, right? I mean, there are, some, there are regular stories about how concerned everybody... Is about you know the miniaturization of Chinese uh, excuse me North Korean uh, nuclear weapons. I suspect they're not doing any of that work exclusively on their own. Uh, you know, I mean there was a lot of evidence to suggest that Russia and China has been have been helping them for some time. And and indeed the Chinese aren't really embar- enforcing any embargoes uh, on the on the North Koreans. Um, I mean indeed some satellite tracking information and a great story in the New York Times about how the Chinese are circumventing. Um, oil transfers by, by spoofing transponders and, and the like. Is there anything to be seen in how the, the the openness of the North Koreans about the failure as they work their way to a functioning space capability?
3: Well, they, they were caught out. I mean, they were trying to publicize this launch. This was something that had been near and dear to Kim Jong-un's agenda. He'd been talking about this satellite launch for, for months. Um, and when it didn't happen in April, um, and then the South Koreans actually successfully put up a commercial uh, constellation of satellites This uh, before the North Koreans launched. It seemed to rush the North Koreans into action. It may have been responsible for the, the failure. Um, and uh, it basically was undeniable. In fact, the South Korean military helped to salvage part of the fuselage of this mm. satellite launch missile already, um, and uh, the North Koreans look pretty pretty weak uh, on this issue. Meanwhile, I mean, I went to at the Jeju Forum uh, an absolutely fantastic panel on what South Korea is doing in space and how far they have come in thirty years. Um, it's a they've built an entire space ecosystem now, um, and uh, it's it's just remarkable. And here the North Koreans are trying, and they'll keep trying. They will. They've promised to put uh, you know more attempts in very soon. Um, Kim Yo-jong, the sister of Kim Jong-un, uh, belittled Americans' uh, criticism of this failed launch as hackneyed um, gibberish. Uh, and uh, you know she's trying to defend the, the fact that they really have uh, lost uh, credibility by talking about this satellite launch for a long time and then failing so visibly. And so they really couldn't deny it. it was It was already public and they were publicizing the launch. Um, Let me uh,
0: take uh, just one more question. And and, uh, Jim, thanks very much uh, for your patience on this. Uh, The table's turned a a little bit or Patrick has to wait a little bit. Let me just ask you one more question uh, about how and the activities the Chinese are doing uh, to circumvent not just oil sanctions, but now the accusation that actually a Chinese vessel has been involved in grave robbing. Um, You know, a lot of the wrecks Uh, in the Pacific from World War II have been unfortunately utterly destroyed uh, because of uh, those trying to reclaim the steel, the high grade uh, military steel used in battleships. Um, And unfortunately uh, the Prince of Wales uh, and uh, uh, the Renown uh, have both been raided, uh, the four sea ships that were sunk uh, days after Pearl Harbor. Um, and, and now it appears that a Chinese vessel has been you know, hovering over them for the last five or six months, uh, dismembering those uh, ships. Are there any repercussions, uh, international repercussions that Beijing is going to face? For for these transgressions, I mean, so blatantly violating sanctions, and and then you know, effectively allowing one of its vessels to participate in grave desecration.
3: Well, there is a growing alignment against sanctions by China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, uh, and um, they're pushing very hard. Uh, just I have to have an aside here, just for a second, on the fact that North Korea has um, been sanctioned so heavily, and. Some of the successful cutting off of their ship-to-ship illicit trade in coal and other commodities um, has forced them to really accelerate what they're doing in cyberspace. And as a result, we've now put out an alert for not just spear phishing, but the South Korean government this week also put out sanctions on Kim Suki, which is a national security intelligence collection, cyber hacking, um, but also trying to figure out how to sanction some of the illicit activities they're doing. They're getting more and more cooperation from China and Russia, as you suggested earlier, because North Korea's value has gone up because of this so-called great power competition, as they call it here. Um, and um, you know, China, meanwhile, is uh, is mostly uh, benefiting from both the pressure on Russia and their sanctions, and North Korea, the pressure on what they're doing. So China's um, has free reign really to do this, and that's what they're going to get an earful. Uh, at Shangri-La this weekend. And I think, again, Prime Minister Albanese kicked it off very well with his keynote address, talking about the importance of the UN uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, and the fact that no one country is too big for these rules, or if they think they are, then um, they're undermining our security, and we're going to have to do something about it, basically. Um, And I think we're we're talking about uh, the joint patrols that Japan United States and the Philippines are starting. And here in Korea, Korea is feeling a lot of heat to participate in those. And I think that's the kind of enforcement and the kind of pushback you're going to see because the Chinese have not just been uh, sort of robbing uh, ships, uh, but they've been um, cutting uh, sea cables, if you believe uh, what's happened in Taiwan. Um, And there's a lot of other concern about what the Chinese are doing in these waters. So very important that there be a growing coalition. And I think that's the key to what we'll hear from Secretary Austin tomorrow um, about these. Uh, the many lateral network security is trying to enforce uh, a rules-based system. And so the short answer to your question was, no, there's not enough enforcement, but watch this space. Maybe it's starting to coalesce.
0: And, and uh, just uh, very briefly, because this is uh, breaking, uh, the Financial Times is reporting, uh, as we record this, that CIA Director Bill Burns made a trip to China last month, a clandestine visit by one of the president, uh, by one of President Joe Biden's most trusted officials, in order to be able to reopen lines of communication, lines of communication, the Chinese shot after we shot down their massive spy balloon over the United States. Just very briefly, is this is this prudent diplomacy, Patrick, or or just almost a sign of weakness, right? How are the Chinese interpreting this? Because they're the ones who are driving this um, and the administration appears more interested in a rapprochement than sort of applying a little bit of hardwood maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't yeah. you know. There are no, a whole yeah, bunch I mean, of lessons from the Cold War on this, aren't there?
3: You know, I think privately sending the CIA director is... Fine to send these kind of signals and to try to open up channels, but looking like you're begging for a meeting with the Minister of Defense, and you're so desperate for guardrails, um, and the fact that the Chinese keep rebuffing us and snubbing us, that makes us look weak. We look like the demandor. You know, we're applying for a meeting. You know, with the the Middle Kingdom, um, and we have to not, um, you know, not look desperate, even though we're trying to be the adult in the in the room here. Uh, and say, look, no, you, it's in everybody's interest to have dialogue. We know that, and we're ready when you are, China. Um, and China is is insisting uh, on getting concessions. They, you know, they did a lot of other things this week that are not being reported. Well, uh, you know, and here in Korea, I feel it because they they basically issued reissued the four nos to to South Korea. They're right. really mad at at at, at President Yoon for tilting toward the United States and working with Japan and even mentioning Taiwan. Um, and, and China is putting the pressure on the region. Um, and we are begging them for a meeting with guardrails, and, and they're using their J-16 to, to bump our reconnaissance aircraft in international airspace. That's their answer to us. They're not happy with us. And by the way, they're not happy with us on the economy as well. And that's why they're using people like Elon Musk and, and Jamie Dimon you know right. these are barbarians to fight the barbarians, but you know, fighting back on the de-risking and the fact that they've got youth unemployment that's at twenty percent now, it's doubled over the last five years, and it's going to get worse in the next five years. So they have a lot of problems, um, and they're not happy with us, and they're not going to give us any concessions right now. But they are meeting with the Japanese, so they're trying to tell the region, look, we we do uh, talk to people who will be reasonable. But we're not going to give in to American pressure. In fact, we're trying to ease them out, but we're not going to use that as a top line uh, of our of our diplomacy.
0: And a reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace with me and JJ Gertler. Uh Jim, you have been exceptionally patient. Thank you so very much. I should have said that actually it's a uh, CNAS's big annual conference with uh, a a very very uh, big uh, cast. Um, Ukraine attacked uh, Russia uh, last week. The Balkans are fraying. Uh, Slovakia, a friend of mine was just in Slovakia who mentioned that it's likely to turn pro-Russian uh, and, and go, go Orban, uh, if you will, after upcoming elections. A lot of Russian hands involved in Serbia, Mon- Moldova, Montenegro, Serbia, Hungary. Uh, indeed, uh, you know, Recep Tayyip Erdogan's uh, re-election uh, in Turkey is a victory for uh, Putin given how important an ally uh, Erdogan ha- has been so across the region challenges. What does let's start with the Balkans? What does uh, the situation in Kosovo and the fact that Kosovars and Serbs are now shooting at NATO troops mean? And what does the alliance do about this at this point? Because its bandwidth is maxed out with the Russians.
4: Uh, after listening to Patrick uh, and then now moving to all these problems in Europe, uh, the administration has its plate full. Uh, And the Balkans is a a tough addition to that plate because, as we all know with the Balkans, things can move fast and get violent really fast, and it's hard to walk it back. And I think what we're seeing right now with this violence breaking out in northern Kosovo and Serbian troops along the border, uh, we have to get in there in a very blunt and, and powerful way. This is something I've worked Balkans in the past, and there's a time for diplomacy and talking, and there's a time for tough talk. And that's where we are right now. And that tough talk has got to be from the U.S. and the Quint nations going in there. Uh, We've got to see troops moving off the border there in Serbia. Uh, We've got to see maybe uh, the introduction of gendarmes from Europe uh, to move in uh, to supplement the Kosovar police. Uh, And we've got to see uh, uh, KFOR reinforced. And I think we're going to see that. But it's a bad situation up there, and uh, we've had the Balkans on the back burner for years. This has been boiling along, and uh, the bandwidth, as you have pointed out, has been uh, pretty full for a lot of people. But now we're going to have to put some good, uh, tough-talking uh, diplomats to begin with, diplomats in there to separate the forces uh, and to get uh, both governments to, uh, to pull back on the provocateurs that are there. And to, and to try to get things to a, a quiet place so they can try to put together that process they've been working on so that Serbia and the Kosovars can somehow uh, govern without having these kinds of violent uh, outbreaks. So this is a bad place. And my point on this is we've got to pull it off the, the back burner, State Department particularly, is gonna to have to have a, a tough uh, negotiator go in there and lead the Quint uh, and to try to get things turned around. The EU is a big part of this. The EU has been trying, uh, but, but the EU doesn't have that strong voice, frankly, uh, down there. And, and it's going to have to be the US and the Quint, but particularly the US to go down there and start twisting arms and separate uh, the warring parties.
0: How does the election of Erdogan, right? What does that signal, right? He has been saying that he's going to remain the hard man uh, in Turkey, uh, but he's also suggested that he's going to rebuild ties uh, transatlantically, as well as with the NATO alliance, right? Sort of a necessary expedient to get uh, reelected, but you know, and and there was widespread, you know, June one elections over, and uh, Sweden is coming in, and he's actually holding remarkably tough on Sweden coming in. Anthony Blinken was just uh, in uh, 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 the uh, the sw- Sweden and in Finland, uh, and and talking to our allies and partners up there. We're still nowhere. Near a deal, and in fact, if it's not Turkey that's going to veto Sweden, it may well be Hungary. Are we any closer to this? And in you know, all candor, is Stockholm making it into the NATO alliance or not? And what does that mean?
4: Well, in terms of Hungary, I've heard from a number of folks over the past few days that the Hungarians have said uh, that they're going to they're going to uh, agree to bring uh, Sweden in, but they're not. They're but they're still waiting for Turkey. Uh, and Erdogan, you know, this is the Turkish endgame. This is, you know, the, the Turks, you don't expect the Turks to uh, immediately then start giving favors to everyone after the election. They're going to sw- keep squeezing. This is what the Turks do. Uh, but I've, I'm feeling pretty certain that uh, they're going to relent uh, after they realize that they've gotten the last drop of blood out of Sweden uh, and whatever else that the uh, Turks are going after, like F-16 spare parts and upgrades and that type of thing. And that's being worked on now, too.
0: And the president so I, made that offer, right, directly to Erdogan and his congratulatory phone call.
4: That's right. And we know that on the Hill that's being worked as well. But uh, I think what the Turks are going to do is the Vilnius is a few, uh, you know, it's not around the corner necessarily. Uh, and I think the Turks are going to squeeze a bit more until uh they're going to go ahead and 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 provide that uh you know that gift to the alliance of relenting on sweden and the hungarians will fall in right behind and i don't think this is going to be a problem but it's but i think it's really putting all of us on notice that in terms of tactics uh the turks are going to be they have upped their game in terms of playing hardball here uh and erdogan is going to be certainly be uh uh, you know, after this election, he's, he's going to feel even more emboldened to, to do these kinds of things. Uh, and so the alliance is going to have to figure out what to do. Uh, if we're going to find another situation like this, where uh, the Turks are going to play a game of chicken with everyone, uh, how can we deal with this tactic? uh and uh and so that's going to be something that the next section is going to have to take on uh is dealing with having this kind of kind of ally but i do believe sweden's going to come in i think they're going to it will it's going to take a little bit longer uh but uh but sweden also has got to be able to sweden's got to show that it's doing everything it can and they which they've been doing i mean they've passed legislation on counterterrorism and this type of thing but i think sweden will come in Uh, but then we're going to still have to deal with an emboldened Er Erdogan.
0: How does the new uh, start language uh, from Washington play into uh, all of this, right? I mean, because Washington's point is the new start, you know, that Russia cannot get out of the new start treaty because there was no mechanism to really get out of it. On the other hand, it said, well, because the Russians aren't cooperating, we're going to suspend cooperation, right? No reciprocal visits, none of the transparency, uh, none of the data sharing and advance warning of, of nuclear uh, uh, delivery tests and things like that. I mean, does this, does this really what does this mean ultimately as, as somebody who was, you know key member of the team that helped negotiate it? Uh, right? And 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 somebody who was involved in the verification of it.
4: Well, I, what I would say, there's two ways to look at it. One is, uh, you know, Russia has been started this. Uh, last year, they began to use this tactic, tactic of not providing data and telemetry, all the various things that are part of the verification process, which is key uh, to arms control is verification. It was really hard to get the Soviets, and then the Russians to, to agree to verification. Uh, and it was a great success when we were able to put together this, this verification package and to get them to agree. So, so now they're beginning to use that uh, as a tactic against the, uh, against the West and against the United States. Um, and so, uh, so, so having the U.S. then come in and say, well, we're not going to uh, provide data as well um, is something that you would have to expect. And, uh, so we're doing is the tip for tap that you can you see in these kinds of arrangements. Uh, and so, so I wasn't so surprised with seeing our response there, but I think what's the big point, the most important point is that it's unprecedented, frankly, uh, to use arms control in this way, the way also, uh, uh, Putin has been using the nuclear card, putting that on the table, as he did last year, the, the potential use of that. Um, that's, thats It's really unprecedented to, to, that we have found ourselves now at this level of, of uh, hostility with Russia, where things that have been kind of off the table, a bit taboo uh, for years, um, uh, that are now being played by the Russians. Um, and so that, that's the most important point to me is that we are really in a new era dealing with Russia when it comes to nuclear things, whether it's arms control, whether it's nuclear deterrence, uh, verbalizing uh, the, the the use of the potential use of nuclear weapons in a conflict that's just hasn't been done until now. And we're so we're in a new place. The, but, uh, but I will make the point that both the U.S. and the Russians have said they're going to keep following the core portions of of new start, uh, you know, in terms of limitations and this type of thing, we're talking about verification, uh, which is where a lot of the movement uh, has been made over the past few months by the Russians and the US. But in terms of the core parts of START, the START limitations, they're gonna abide by that. Uh, but of course, the verification mechanisms of, are, are not, we can't employ those to make sure that that happens. But these are reversible. Uh, we can, when things get better, we can return back to START. But, but remember also, 2026 I think is the date uh, of when the start uh, expires. And this is gonna make it harder for us to have a, right. have a, a new um, extension of the start agreement, one that might be uh, you know, even a better agreement, uh, but we're not gonna be in a place to negotiate something like that. In fact, we've now lost ground, of course, uh, with these verification limitations that have been pulled back. So, so, so the big point here is that we're in a new place in terms of arms control, and, and we've got big, uh, uh, you know, uh, big points, big points in time coming up where we need to be taking action on arms control on the START agreement, uh, and this is going to make it harder for us to achieve those goals. So uh, if you're in arms control, it's, it's, this, is, this is making it harder to achieve what we all want in arms control, which right. are the limitations on ballistic missiles.
0: Um, uh, uh, we are uh, running uh, down uh, on the clock, uh, unfortunately. And Dove, I want to go to you. First, great piece uh, in uh, the Hill Could Ireland be joining uh, NATO? Uh, could Ireland be joining NATO? And what are the obstacles in its path? I mean, it's a giant step, right? I mean, Ireland had yeah, well, only one uh, fisheries protection vessel.
2: What they're already announcing that they're going to do is they're going to join this new uh, effort to protect undersea cables, which of course is something they're worried about because the Russians are suspected of cutting them. And they're moving closer and closer to NATO. And it looks like they may be following the Swedish and Finnish model of the last 10 or 15 years of getting closer, especially to the United States, even while they're outside the alliance. Uh, A couple of points uh, about uh, Erdogan and Sweden. Uh, I totally agree, this is not gonna happen before Vilnius. But the problem isn't the administration. The problem is Bob Menendez. And my guess is that until uh, Menendez yields on this question of F-16s, uh, it's just going to be hopeless for Sweden. The Swedes are optimistic. I've spoken to senior Swedes in the last few days. But nevertheless, that's really the problem. Uh, we all know that that's the deal, even though everybody announced, uh, you know, says it's not the deal, but it's basically Sweden for F-16s in, in its largest form, spare parts, whatever. Uh, Menendez has keeps re, uh, asserting that he's not going to cave. Um, but I, unless he does, I simply don't see why Erdogan is going to go ahead with this. Uh, if he hints that he is, uh, which is what happened with Finland, then Orban will go ahead first and then uh, Erdogan will come in. I also want to make a quick point about Kosovo to show how complicated this is. This all started because Pristina, the capital the government, said that the Serb Kosovars in the north could no longer have Serbian license plates. The Serbs went nuts. There was an election for mayors, and the deal has always been that the mayoralities would essentially reflect the population well the serbs boycotted the vote the elections and so these four mayors got elected with like less than four percent of the vote right. so the serbs have said this is ridiculous we sent in 700 more people or k4 did to help quiet things down that was the last thing the serbs were prepared to tolerate and that's where we are uh, and so when a deal as jim says is worked out it's got to be worked out in a way that the Serb the state because the albanian serbs don't feel that they've been double-crossed because right snap right now that's how they feel rightly or wrongly but when you only get four percent of the vote and you got police protecting you as mayor and then they start shooting at, at serbs that doesn't help either
0: Dov, uh, you get the last word. Very thoughtful piece, uh, as ever, from uh, Dr. Elliot Cohen in The Atlantic, uh, calling the administration's comments regarding Ukraine as strategically witless. Uh, and I believe that that's on the mark. Well, The note he makes is the administration has done some extraordinary things, some very good things, but then has these odd leaks suggesting, you know, we negotiate with the Russians, the Russians are uninterested in negotiating, outing the Ukrainians. You know, the Ukrainians don't take credit for having attacked the Kremlin. And then there's a leak that You know, well, Ukraine was behind the attack and it's as all different parts of the administration keep babbling as a reflection. You know, it's almost like a psychoanalytic drama. Um, Why is the administration as ill-disciplined as this on messaging and what are sort of the broader dangers? And I'd love to take a look at this more deeply across each one of the axes, because whenever the administration does this, the whole world is watching, Right. What, what's your sense on this well, there and, are, and the importance there, there of the piece?
2: There, there are two possible explanations. One is that, like all administrations, it can't control leaks. And the leakers tend to be people who want the United States to focus only on China and to essentially get what the administration to pressure the Ukrainians. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that's exactly what, what the administration wants. And a lot of people suspect that it wants, namely... That these sorts of leaks will make it much more awkward for Zelensky and allow the administration to pressure him to s- somehow sit down and make some kind of concession to the Russians. Zelensky's not going to do that. We can't do it openly because of what happened in Afghanistan with Ashraf Ghani, where we essentially double crossed him. Uh, Zelensky's no Ghani. He's not going to run away, he's going to push back. Uh, and so, it's a dilemma for them. So it's possible that they're that it, this is deliberate policy, but it's equally possible as just a bunch of leakers because we know there are folks in Washington who are saying, why are we doing so much for Ukraine when China's the real target?
0: Uh, Jim, this involves uh, Ukraine. Uh, give us uh, 30 seconds.
4: In 30 seconds, I'll say that there was a lot to what Cohen wrote about internal U.S. administration uh, unease uh, at dealing with things military, unease at dealing with things dealing with force. So, yes, there was a lot about the leaks, but there was also a lot of what Cohen wrote in terms of how the administration is handling uh, being at war. And I think uh, he made some very good points about hubris and very good points about naivete as well. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, readers might want to really pay attention to in, in the Cohen piece.
0: Uh, again, another uh, terrific piece. Everybody, thanks very much. Hope you guys have a great weekend and a great uh, week and look forward to having you back on again next week. And thanks very much to all of you for listening and a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. We'll see you again for the Business Roundtable on Sunday. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend.